Well, I hope uh, you're ready to continue our journey through the uh, challenging and fascinating book of Revelation. Uh, the last two weeks, I've tried to tackle whole chapters at a time, which is hard because there's a lot in there. So uh, this week I decided we're going to slow down a little bit and we're just going to focus on five verses. But we're picking up right where we left off, uh, Revelation chapter 14. So if you have your own Bible, I encourage you to make your way there now. Now before we read this, I just want to do a quick recap of where we've been over the last couple weeks. Uh, Chapters 12 and 13 were visions, they were symbolic representations of the spiritual battle between good and evil. So chapter 12 was that vision of the the dragon and the woman where the dragon represents Satan and the woman represents the nation of Israel and her descendants. And you might remember that the dragon was depicted as uh, waiting to devour the woman's child, uh, which represented Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, The dragon did not succeed, but then the dragon went off to pursue the woman, to hunt the woman and her descendants. So it's a depiction of the spiritual battle that we are still in today. And then uh, the second uh, vision of spiritual warfare, chapter 13, uh, I argued last week that that was a vision um, primarily of what was going on in the first century, and specifically the way that the spiritual war with the dragon was playing out in the first century. A uh, vision of two beasts. One beast, I argued, is the, the Roman Empire, and the other beast, the beast from the land, uh, was the local authorities who were enforcing obedience to the Roman Empire. Now remember... Uh, Just because I argued that John's vision primarily related to the first century, uh, I was not arguing that it is not relevant for us today. Okay, Because the dragon is at work in every generation to raise up beasts, uh, to raise up the spirit of empire. And you might remember that last week I tried to identify what the spirit of empire is that the dragon works through. And and the way that I summarized it was the spirit of empire is the attitude that says that three things matter most. Loyalty to the empire, military strength, and money. And none of these things are evil in and of themselves, but when we have no allegiances or values that transcend these three things, the dragon has this free reign to work through them to do all kinds of terrible things, to perpetuate injustice, to do harm to God's creation, to spread falsehoods and lies. Um, So, this week we're getting to a new vision, and the last two have been about war. This vision is about the people who are victorious in that battle. So, uh, let's read it, but before we do, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look at the book of Revelation. And Lord, we pray that we would be surrendered to your Holy Spirit as you speak to us through it. Lord, we pray that you would give us insight and uh, clarity. And we pray that uh, you would um, affect transformation in our lives uh, through what we read. Lord, we believe that your word is living and active. And we pray that we would experience its power this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. All right, so John looks and he sees something new. He sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 people who have the Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, a very literal understanding of this passage would say something like this. You know, John is uh, seeing a future event where Jesus, represented by the Lamb, is with 144,000 of his followers on Mount Zion, which could be taken as, you know, literally uh, where the temple was in Jerusalem. Now, that's one way of seeing this. But I want to look at uh, a verse from Hebrews that might challenge that perspective. Remember, uh, Revelation is a very symbolic book, and there's a verse in Hebrews that uh, gives us further reason to see this in symbolic terms. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 22, the writer says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Now, that's very interesting, because I can imagine that the original audience of Hebrews might go, we have, really? But the writer of Hebrews was talking about something that was a present reality for them. Okay? There was this, this even though they couldn't look around them and see thousands of thousands of angels in joyful assembly, even though they might not literally be standing on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the writer was still saying, there is a sense in which this is true, in which this is your present reality, because through Christ, you have union with God. Through Christ, the promises that God gave throughout the Old Testament are being fulfilled. Uh, through Christ, uh, you have uh, security in the midst of life's trials and, and tribulations. You have come to Mount Zion. You have arrived. So it's possible that this vision in Revelation is a description of the present from a heavenly perspective. You know, part of what Revelation teaches us is that there is more dimensions to reality than what we can see with our eyes, right? And it encourages us uh, to see our present through a heavenly perspective, okay? So... Uh, this could be a description of the present from a heavenly perspective. It could be a description of a literal event on earth in the future. It could be a description of a, um, a future heavenly event. It's hard to be sure. And I prefer to acknowledge when we can't be sure of something rather than pretend 
that we're certain of it or be dogmatic about it. So I just want to acknowledge that there's this ambiguity uh, here in the text. But here's what I think we can say confidently. We can say confidently, confidently that this vision is giving us a picture of what those who are faithful to Jesus, faithful in the midst of this spiritual war, look like, what they're like. And it's an image that's meant to inspire and encourage us. Okay? Now, before we talk about what the vision tells us, I want to talk briefly about this number, 144,000. This is actually the second time that Revelation uses this number. Uh, the other time is in chapter 7, uh, which we talked about back in February. Props to you if you remember that, because that was quite a while ago now. And what I suggested back in 144, back, uh, back in February, about 144,000, is that like most numbers in Revelation, it is a symbolic number, and it's not meant to be taken literally. Uh, in chapter 7, when the 144,000 are introduced, they are described as the servants of God who are sealed by him. And here in chapter 14, uh, they are described as the redeemed of the earth, or from the earth. So, a similar uh, description. Now, if we take the 144,000 to be a literal number, we need to be consistent. Okay, we can't just take the number as literal. We have to take all the descriptions about the 144,000 as literal. And what that means, if we do that, is that the servants of God who are sealed by him and redeemed from the earth are exactly 144,000 in number. They are ethnically Jewish. Uh, they are equally distributed among 12 different tribes, which, if this is describing something in, a, in the future, that creates some problems because most Jews today have no idea which tribes they descend from. Uh, they're all men if you didn't catch that, and they're virgins. Um, <laughs> now let's think about this for a moment. If I were to say to you, the redeemed of God, who are sealed by him, does not include any women, and does not include anyone who's been sexually active, I hope you would say, that doesn't sound right. Right? Right? And so what I suggested back in February is that the 144,000 is a symbol for the church. And there is symbolic significance to all of those details that I just described. But if you take them literally, it doesn't really make sense. Okay. So what is the symbolic significance? Well, 12 is a number that is significant throughout Scripture, right? There's 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 apostles. And 144,000 is a, a combination of 12s, 12 times 12,000. So that in itself is evidence that this could be describing the people of God, the, the church, a number that's meant to uh, represent that. Another hint that the 144,000 represents something bigger than just 144,000 ethnic Jews is the fact that in chapter 7, when we first hear about them, it says that John, as he's experiencing this vision, he is hearing 
about the 144,000. It doesn't say that he sees them. It says that he's hearing about them, and he's hearing about 12,000 from each tribe. But then when John looks and he sees, what he sees is a great multitude that no one can count from every tribe, nation, people, and language. And so that insinuates that what the 144 represents is something bigger than 144,000 ethnic Jews. So if those details are not meant to be taken literally, then what's the point of them? What do, what do they represent? Well, this is a quick overview of what I said back in February, but I think it's important. Okay? Uh, if the 144,000 is a symbol for the church, it's telling us three things that are important about the church. Okay, one is that our, our spiritual roots are Jewish, right? The church's roots are Jewish. Uh, in order to fully understand uh, the Jesus that we follow, we have to understand our heritage, which goes back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? Um, we are people, descendants, spiritual descendants of Israel. Uh, second thing that the symbol tells us is that the church is a spiritual army, we are a spiritual army, and, and the reason it tells us that is because when Israel would go to war uh, long ago, they would send battalions of a thousand men from each tribe. And so here we have, um, in chapter 7, it says that each tribe sent 12 battalions, right? So there's the sense of completeness, the number 12. And, and the, the imagery here is militaristic, right? So it is implying the church is a spiritual army. Now, we are not a violent army. We don't wage war the way that uh, armies of the earth ordinarily do. Okay, we wage war following the lamb, and that has significant implications for how we do it. We're not a violent army. Uh, but we are in a war against the dragon, a spiritual battle. And uh, we don't uh, draft dodge. We don't <laughs> tap out of that war. Okay, we're in it. And then finally, number three, the symbol reminds us uh, that the church refuses to worship anything or anyone other than God. And that's the significance of the line about the men being virgins. Okay? The point there is, is not that there's something inherently evil about uh, being married, something that makes you impure. Uh, the reason is because multiple times throughout Scripture... Sexual activity is, is used as a metaphor for uh, spiritual idolatry, adultery. If you worship anything other than God, it is often described as a metaphor as uh, adultery, spiritual uh, sexual activity. Okay, so that's what that is. I believe that's what that is saying. All right, so let's get back to chapter 14. So John sees this symbol of the church. Standing with Jesus. And I don't know if you noticed this, but they go without any transition from Mount Zion to the throne, to the throne of God. Uh, which recalls back to chapter 4 and 5 when we had this vision of the heavenly throne room, uh, the throne surrounded by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And we're told that the 144,000 have learned a song which they are singing, a song that no one else could learn. I love this metaphor. When you are a follower of Jesus, it's like you're tapping into a radio frequency that a lot of people are not hearing. And that 
song that you hear on that radio frequency changes your experience of the world and changes the way that you live in it. Now, I'm reminded of the fact that when I run, it makes a big difference if I'm listening to music. And it also makes a big difference what kind of music I'm listening to. You know, if I have the right playlist, I can run a lot farther and a lot faster. And, you know, I like to listen to podcasts, and sometimes I try to do it when I'm running, but I'm, all, I'm never going to go as far, and I, I'm never going to go as fast if I'm listening to podcasts. It just doesn't work as well. And in a similar way, when we are listening to the song of the Holy Spirit, okay, we have more energy, we have more perseverance, we have more strength to love, we have more courage, we have more capacity to resist evil. Now, the new song that the 144,000 have learned, that was actually described back in chapter 5. Going back to it, uh, it says that those around God's throne are singing a new song to the Lamb, and it goes like this. Uh, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the song that the church has learned to sing, hopefully the song that we are learning to sing, is a song that declares that Jesus is worthy to be Lord. Lord of our lives, Lord of history, Lord of creation. And notice the reason why it says that he's worthy. The reason is because you were slain. Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. One way of putting this is you are worthy because you embody sacrificial love. That's very significant, that that's the song that we're supposed to be learning as the church, right? Because some people don't see sacrificial love as a sign that someone is worthy of power or admiration. Some would say only a fool would allow themselves to be slain for the sake of somebody else, especially a sinner. Some would say only a fool would humble himself radically. Only a fool would go willingly from being a king to being a servant. Only a fool would uh, willingly go from heaven to a cross. Come on. Only a fool wouldn't get even. The world sings a different kind of song than the one that the Lamb teaches us. It's the song of empire, right? It's a song that says money, 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 power, 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 revenge, 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 coercion, 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 me, 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 consume, 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 more, more, more. But the church is called to learn a different song, right? A song that celebrates what Jesus embodies, that says, oh, that's glorious, that you were slain for the sake of others. A song that celebrates love, that celebrates grace, that celebrates forgiveness, humility, truth. 
I'm sure we've all heard the saying, he dances to the beat of his own drum, right? Or he marches to the beat of his own drum. And what that saying means is it's like he's hearing a song that nobody else is hearing, and he's moving to that song, he's living his life, going to that beat, right? And it's one that is different from everybody else. People should be able to use that expression about the church, that we are marching to the beat of our own drum. But we're not marching to the beat of our own drum, right? We're marching to the beat of the Holy Spirit, the song that the Spirit is teaching us. And the song that the Spirit teaches us is a song that recognizes that Jesus is worthy because of his goodness, right? Because of his love, because of his sacrifice. What else can we learn about the church from this vision? Notice at the end of verse 4, it says, They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, it might not be obvious, but that sentence says something that might make us a little bit uncomfortable. Wherever the Lamb goes, they follow. Now, where did the Lamb go? Well, he's the Lamb that was slain, right? So the lamb went to the cross. The lamb went to suffering and death. So this is saying that the church, the people of God, are people who are willing to suffer in order to do what's right. People are willing to suffer in order to serve God and love their neighbor. Even if following Jesus means following him to death, they're willing to do that. This is a hard, hard teaching. Now, at the time, in the first century, as I have talked about in previous weeks, this was a very relevant message because during that time, you were expected to worship the Roman emperor, to participate in imperial worship. And in some places in the Roman Empire, if you didn't do that, you were really putting yourself at risk of serious consequences. Uh, Like we looked at last week, there was that verse that said, if you go into captivity or need to go into captivity, Go into captivity. If someone brings the sword against you, let them bring the sword against you. Right? There was this idea that being faithful to Jesus, not bowing down to any other god, could come with the threat of imprisonment or even death. That was true at the time. Now, uh, fortunately, we don't live in a time where we have this threat of imprisonment or death hanging over us for following Jesus. I'm thankful for that. But we should never let that fact lull us into thinking that our faith is just sort of some, you know, self-help program, sprinkles on the ice cream of life, (laughs) a box that we check on the census, just our political or tribe or whatever that we're a part of. It's not like that, right? Our faith is supposed to be a source of conviction. It's supposed to uh, be the thing that that, that orients how we see the world. It's supposed to be something that uh, gives us moral fortitude, right? Something that uh, directs us, even if it means suffering. And, and what this is saying is don't worship false gods, even if that has consequences. And not only that, but don't use violence to try to resist the consequences that might come your way if you're faithful. That's very important. Okay, Jesus calls us to radical obedience, but he never calls us to be a violent extremist. 
I know as soon as you start talking about radical obedience to any faith, some people get uncomfortable because they start thinking of you know, terrorists fly, flying planes into buildings and that sort of thing. But no, no, no. That's not the way of the Lamb at all. Right? The way of the Lamb is nonviolent resistance to evil. The way of the Lamb is not to kill our enemies, but to patiently in suffering love our enemies. As hard as that is. The last thing I want to focus on is uh, verse 5. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. If we follow the Lamb wherever He goes, if uh, we learn His song, if we dance to the beat of His drum, we should be people of truth. This is very important. We should be people who speak truth. We should be people who seek truth. And we should be people who are humble enough to be honest about when we're not sure what the truth is. This is something that's so important for us to recognize because I would say our culture right now is in the midst of an epistemic crisis. Um, I'm hearing a lot of cultural commentators describe it that way. And what that means is that we as a society are having a very hard time forming a broad consensus on what is true and how you determine what is true. You know, people don't agree on what sources of information they can trust. People have radically different opinions on that. And as technology develops, this epistemic crisis is getting worse and worse for several reasons. One of them is that as technology improves, people are going to be able to fake audio and video better than ever before. It actually kind of boggles the mind when you start to think about where we're headed uh, in terms of trying to uh, determine objective reality. It's a little scary. And of course, one of the things that makes uh, this epistemic crisis worse is social media. Uh, recently, I watched a documentary called The Social Dilemma. I would highly recommend this documentary. Uh, and it includes interviews with some of the people who helped to uh, create the social media platforms that so many people use today, billions of people. And uh, they said that they are very concerned about the epistemic crisis that they've helped to create. Maybe not intentionally, but they see the writing is on the wall that a huge problem has resulted uh, because of the technology that they've produced. And uh, the documentary, will, if you watch it, it fleshes this out in more detail. But basically it explains that social media platforms have one main goal. Make money. Right? And this, gets, this should remind us right, of that spirit of the empire. Right? One of the values is making money, and when you have absolutely nothing higher than that value, it can lead to problems. And I think this is, this is a good example of that. But social media platforms want to make money. How do they make money? Well, they make it through advertising. How do you sell more ads? You keep more eyeballs on the platform for a longer period of time. The, the more that a social media platform can promise advertisers, I'll have this many people looking for this long, right, the more ads they can sell. So 
media platforms are designed to hold your attention as long as they possibly can. And they do that through all kinds of research to determine what makes them as addictive as possible. And one of the things that they do is the longer that you're on them, the more they learn who you are based on what you like, what you look at, what you click on, what you don't click on. So it's kind of like quicksand. The longer you spend in it, the better it gets at knowing you. And then the logarithms will suggest things that it thinks you'll want to see. So as you're scrolling through your feed, it keeps giving you what it thinks is the most likely to hold your attention and keep you on the platform. So let's say you're somebody who has more of a conservative political bias. Over time, as the platform gets to know you, what is it going to do? It's going to give you more news articles and uh, posts that confirm you in your views and increase your hatred of the opposite side. Not because it has some agenda to indoctrinate you, but because it just wants to hold your attention. It wants to keep you on the platform. And, you know, the same is true if you're, say, you're on the other side of the political spectrum. And what researchers have noticed is that as people spend time on their social media platforms more and more, they tend to become more radical in their views. Because over time, it keeps giving you more and more radical material because that holds your attention more. That's more interesting. The more angry you are, the more excited you are, the more likely you are to stay on the platform. And, and so this results in greater partisanship in society, greater anger, greater detachment from reality. And everybody is kind of living in their own media narrative, their own echo chamber. And in the worst case scenarios, this leads to violence in the streets. There have been places in the world uh, where social media platforms are, have been directly tied uh, to, to, uh, to violence, breaking out. And so in the world that we are living in right now, it is so important for us to hear that we are supposed to be people of truth. We're supposed to be people who really make an effort to be discerning. Okay, We're supposed to be people who don't just immediately follow the most sensational headlines or uh, are guided by fear and pride and anger, right? But we're supposed to be people who try to be objective, who try to read the details, right? People who aren't just guided by this ideological tribalism, right? But guided by Christ. We follow the Lamb, and he wants us to care about truth. And I know that's not easy. It's not easy when you're being bombarded by information and you have your own biases and all of that. But that is part of what following the Lamb means. You know, and I hate to say this, but I have seen a lot of Christians over the last few years sharing things on social media that if you just take five seconds to do a fact check, you can determine that that is false. Five seconds. 
or at the very least, you can find out that it, it's undetermined whether or not this information is true. And a lot of the information that's being shared is slanderous. Material that uh, slanders our neighbors, right? That attributes diabolical wickedness to people who we don't know. And yet, it takes five seconds to Google and read a well presented and sourced article that explains why this isn't true. And if that's what we do, if that's the kind of information we share, why would we be surprised if people look at us askance when we start saying that we believe someone rose from the dead? We haven't given them a reason to trust our discernment. No lie was found in their mouths. That means we don't knowingly spread lies and we don't, we don't claim to know things that we don't actually know. If we don't value truth, the dragon will work through us. Okay? The spirit of empire will grow all the more. But when we value truth, when we seek truth, the spirit of empire loses ground. And Christ is glorified. So, quick review. What does this show us? This vision of the 144,000. It shows us that we are called to be people who march to the beat of a different drum. Not the song that the, the spirit of empire is, is uh, leading us in, but the song that the Holy Spirit leads us in. One that celebrates Jesus and recognizes the beauty of sacrificial love. Right? Uh, we're called to be a people who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, even if that means suffering. And we are called to be people of truth. And this vision reminds us of something else, which is that following that calling leads to joy. This vision is a, is a vision of celebration, right? It's a vision of rejoicing around the throne of God. That's where it leads. That's where I want to go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a high calling that we have as your people. It's a hard calling, but it's a good calling. And it's a calling that leads to life. And it's a calling that leads to blessing others and Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to be faithful. Lord, may we follow you, the Lamb, wherever you lead. In Jesus' name, amen.